0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt has signed a new law to give OU Health more than $100 million in COVID-19 funds, but the money can't be used for transgender youth medical treatments. In a signing ceremony, Stitt also called on lawmakers to impose a statewide ban in the coming legislative session. Neva, do you think the legislature will follow through with the governor's request next year?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, first of all, (laughs) a lot of things have to happen between now and then. We have an election. Uh, We'll have new legislators uh, that will be sworn in uh, in the mix. Uh, Who knows? I mean, we could have a new governor. I mean, we just don't know all of the dynamics uh, at this point. The other factor is, I mean, when we talk about going into regular session and a topic like this, a full-out ban is a very, uh, I think, is a, a very challenging proposition, regardless of you know who the who the lawmakers are that'll be taking those votes, because you have so many other dynamics. I mean, are we talking about uh, trying to impose this on private facilities? Are we talking about uh, uh, folks that uh, have the wherewithal to uh, pay for these procedures, and they're not in the, uh, they're not going to be a factor in insurance or anything else? Um, so there are so many complicating factors that I think this is one of those right now, uh, just uh, political footballs in this political season. And when you get down to the real policy debate, I think it changes. Uh, and frankly, uh, I, I think we're seeing some change even nationally. I mean, I've seen some reports of leading um, transgender medical professionals who are coming forward now and saying that uh, they are concerned by the trends and that they that they believe that causing these. Uh, irreversible consequences uh, to a person that's perhaps not ready, a minor, uh, that there are some serious issues uh, in play there. So this is a conversation we're going to be having for a long, long time. But I think uh, at this juncture, there's, in my mind, certainly more questions than answers.
2: Ryan? Well, and I think that that conversation is best had among those medical professionals that you just mentioned. I mean, to the extent that there's any debate or argument over the efficacy of these gender-affirming treatments, uh, you know, whether that's hormone blockers, whether that's and then, you know, kind of all the way to the extreme, which I want to point out, you know, the extreme being uh, that, you know, gender reassignment surgery, you know, the state of Oklahoma, we're not doing that. I mean, that's in terms of like the University of Oklahoma Health uh, Science Center. I think that they said that nowhere in the last five years have they had anything like that. Um, So I just want to be clear about that. But when, we, when you talk about, you know, to the extent that there's a debate, it really needs to happen in the medical context. It doesn't need to happen on the floor of the Senate. It doesn't need to happen on the floor of the House of Representatives. It needs to happen among doctors, physicians, and then ultimately patients. And if it's a minor patient, their parents or their family or their guardian. Um, we saw last week, whenever the legislature did take this up, the proponents of this, the leading proponents of this admitted that they hadn't walked the halls of these hospitals. They haven't talked to these doctors. You know, they, they may have read something online but in Oklahoma, the Roy G. Bib program, which is now you know uh, shuttered at the Oklahoma uh, OU Health Sciences Center, uh, that's saved people's lives. Uh, and it's not just a matter of giving people you know medicine or drugs or treatment. For the most part, it's about counseling. It's about making sure that families know how to address these very difficult topics as they come up. Because let's let's face it, you know most Oklahomans. If you have a child that comes uh, to you and they they present with gender dysphoria or any other uh, any other sign like that that might put them into something that needs gender affirming care. There's really not a roadmap for how to deal with that. You don't really have the tools for how to deal with that or how to talk about that. And so when you have these medical professionals that are able to work with these families, work with these uh, these patients, you get much better outcomes. And that's um, and you know maybe whenever they you know turn eighteen or something, there's there's something else that happens. but, Having that treatment and those, those counseling sessions whenever they're young and going through some of the most difficult stages of the life anyways uh, is just critical. And now the state of Oklahoma has done away with that. I agree with Neva. It is a much diff- different proposition in terms of the politics of passing a total outright ban. But I don't doubt that we'll see it this legislative session. I know that there are several legislators that will bring uh, something like that. Now, whether it moves or not is really going to be up to leadership.
1: But, you know, when you take into account, I mean, the one thing that I would mention is the fact that when the governor signed this bill, earmarking this $108 million in the ARPA money, the federal stimulus funds, to the University of Oklahoma health system, you're talking about public dollars being allocated to a public institution. So the scrutiny and the conversation and the debate uh, from the lawmaker's standpoint is certainly relevant. And I think uh, uh, that's very, I mean, we're talking about that versus all of the issues you just raised that are individual issues. But I mean, in the context of, of uh, looking at this from a public policy standpoint, I think it is important for us to remember that we are talking about public tax money.
2: But I don't think that that debate, because of the the late-minute, the last-minute drop of this language in this bill, most folks in Oklahoma had less than a week to even consider or or talk about this or reach out to their lawmakers – you know, so, I mean, even there, there was, you know, really strong debate in both chambers uh, and strong questions in both chambers. This wasn't fully vetted in the sense that, you know, the doctors at the Health Sciences Center were able to go and talk to lawmakers about what the Roy ROYGBIV program is. I don't know why I can't say that. The Roy ROYGBIV <laughs> program is and, and uh, what is or was, um, that's, uh, that didn't really happen. So I think that a, a total ban, you're going to see more physicians, more healthcare workers, more families talking to lawmakers about why this care is important.
0: While legislators approved nearly $2 billion in COVID-19 pandemic funds, they failed to advance more than $95 million to the Department of Human Services. The money was supposed to go for child care services, food programs, and various programs for the effects of domestic violence. Ryan, what's the holdup here?
2: Well, there seems to be a disagreement between the House and the Senate. there's wasn't really clear what the disagreement was. I know that when I was out at the Capitol last week, uh, some of the lobbyists that represent these organizations uh, were were you know kind of shocked whenever they found out about it but they seemed assured that um, this is going to happen during the next legislative session so even though uh, those organizations would have you know loved to have had that appropriation you know it's it's always good to have a, a guarantee you know a, you know bill signed by the the governor and know that that money's coming um, I don't think anybody right now is is really terribly worried that that uh, isn't going to happen whenever the legislature comes back in February now you know, the wait, you know, the months in between, you know, receiving that, you know, that's, that's unfortunate, but um, I wouldn't panic in terms of the fact that this money isn't going to be there. I think it will be there eventually.
0: Neva.
1: Well, I think, uh, I, I think logically speaking, you would think that uh, that money, A, will be there, B, the, the uh, lawmakers will appropriate it. And we are talking about not only this $95 million that didn't happen, but there's, uh, uh, there's some additional money. Uh, the governor has vetoed a couple of bills, I mean, at least at this point. So there are dollars that are going to be on the table as they come back into session. And I think that fight, whether it's $200 million, $300 million, whatever the real number is when they get right down to it, uh, will be a fight. Because now you're down to something that they normally, those are the kind of dollars they fight over and appropriate all the time and have the battles over, not the billion dollars that, uh, that we've seen with this in- influx of ARPA money. That's a one-time, as we've talked about, a rare one-time opportunity to do some big things, which... Uh, certainly have been demonstrated in much of the uh, uh much of what they've appropriated and and put these dollars towards. So uh it'll be fascinating to see. I think that this is where the slicing and dicing will come that not necessarily all of the programs and all of the entities, the nonprofits and other things that were in this kind of in this mix in this 95 million dollar package may or may not survive uh, round two next year, but uh, it certainly will be uh, a stimulating conversation.
2: Well, and I think, I think you know, to the next extent, you're right. The, the longer this sits out there, the more politics can play with it. Um, you know, Representative Blancet, who was, you know, one of the uh, folks that participated uh, and, and invested a ton of time in these legislative committees that were deciding on how to spend this money. She said that she was, uh, I forget her exact words, but she said that she was saddened that uh, the appropriation to behavioral health and to health care services had been sullied by this last minute political stunt with uh, gender affirming care prohibitions in the state of Oklahoma. I think that the longer it sits out there that, you know, it could become part of like some political give and take. It will ultimately, you know, my sense is that, it's ultimately going to depend on what were these initial differences between the house and the Senate that kept this from moving forward last week. And can they resolve those if they can resolve those and you get this deal in ink, uh, you know, that's, if I were working on that, that's what I'd try to do just as soon as possible. And that seems to be where they're, uh, where the legislators are heading there. But you know, it's a long time between now and February. I well, will say that
1: absolutely. And when you look at these, these are round numbers. I mean, you talk about thirty million for this and three hundred thousand for that, and a million two for this, and uh, you know, ten million for that. I mean, those are round numbers that these uh, that these folks have come to lawmakers saying this is a program that's needed. These are services that are needed. This is something we want to do and can do. Uh, we just need the uh, appropriate uh, money to make it happen. So that's where the conversation, I think, goes from here. The
0: Osage Nation Congress has passed a resolution calling on state lawmakers to repeal House Bill 1775, also known as the Critical Race Theory Ban. The proposal comes after a high school teacher raised concerns about assigning killers of the flower moon to her students. The book deals with racial issues and might make students uncomfortable. So, Neva, do you think the resolution will have any impact on the legislature?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think uh, certainly that we have a situation where... Um, the continued question of is this bill too vague in its in the very nature of the bill, the language, uh, to be able to clearly uh, show teachers, educators, and others what to do and how to navigate this? I think that is something that the legislature, by and large, is already talking about revisiting next session. So I think, in light of that, I mean the the big question to me as I as I looked into. Uh, what the Osage Nation call was about is they were asking other tribal leaders, they were asking others to join in and kind of uh, build a kind of a frontal assault, so to speak, in terms of, uh, uh, of this issue that they feel clearly passionately about. And it'll be interesting to see how that conversation moves forward. And again, I think all of this, we have to take somewhat step back and say we're in a political environment where every one of these issues are highly charged and have political ramifications and uh, this is just another one I think that once again has been thrown on the table
2: well Ryan. you know I <clears throat> excuse me I you know I think that uh the the real one of the real stories here is that you have you're combining two of the most politically powerful forces in the state of Oklahoma tribal governments and educators and so I you know I think that that is an important political dynamic that's going to change when the legislature adopted passed and the governor signed House Bill seventeen seventy five. You know, tribes weren't necessarily out front on that. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I forget. I'm sure that they were opposed to it, but in terms of building a real political coalition meant to push back on it, I think that this is potentially a new development, and I think could change the politics out at the state capitol some this coming session. I do think that uh, they will be coming back to this issue and revisiting 1775. The the vagueness uh, is definitely a problem. You know, I will say though on the on the discomfort side. Um, that the law, if there's any clarity in the law at all, it's on this discomfort uh, uh, situation because it's not a matter of if a student would feel discomfort, uh, but it's a matter of a school or a teacher compelling a student to feel discomfort. You know, most of us might read Killers of the Flower Moon and, you know, feel discomfort at, you know, what's been done in our name uh, and, and what's been done on behalf of the United States government, of which we were a part uh, to indigenous people in the, in the state of Oklahoma and around the nation. We, we might feel discomfort about that, but if, if a student doesn't, the thing that 1775 prevents is a teacher going to that student and saying, you don't feel discomfort about this. You should feel awful about this. That's what it prohibits, but there are a number of areas that are totally unclear, and I think that you're going to have probably. I, I would predict there are going to be two schools of thought this coming legislative session on 1775 um, from the majority. Uh, you know, I think you know Democrats are going to just try to repeal it outright. But you know, in terms of what happens to it, I think that one school of thought is going to be trying to fix it. You know, can they add clarity to it? And then another school of thought, I think, is going to be em- to embrace the confusion uh, because I mean, I think that there is. Uh, a political movement that sees a benefit to score some points uh, and to, um, you know, that they benefit from the fear and distress and uncertainty that teachers and educators and and even parents and students may feel over this. So, um, you know, that may be the point. Confusion may be the point uh, coming out of this next legislative session. So is it going to be to double down on confusion? Is it going to be to, you know, try to fix it and make it more clear?
1: Well, and let's remember, we have two of the largest school districts in the state of Oklahoma, Tulsa Tulsa Public Schools and Mustang Public Schools that already have um, had their accreditations called into question by the by the state board uh, on this very issue of House Bill seventeen seventy five. So, I mean, Oklahoma is in the throes of this, but let's remember nationally. I think there are more than thirty states that you can look at that are dealing with either legislation or public policy matters that are directly uh, that directly whole this question, you know, to the forefront, and I think public schools are going to have to come to terms with this and be able to develop policies so that this is just not an ongoing uh, chaos that uh, that ebbs and flows based on the political dynamics that are uh, driving it on all sides. So uh, it's it's it is something that uh, it's a timely discussion and it's one that has to have some resolution sooner rather than later.
2: And that's where I, you know, I think the debate the debate's going to divide this coming session over chaos versus no chaos. Uh, And I think that there's some lawmakers out there that want chaos in our schools.
0: An Oklahoma City council member appoints herself to a commission she opposed. Ward 3's Barbara Young appointed herself to the Human Rights Commission, even though she was one of four council members who voted no on bringing the panel back after more than a quarter of a century. Ryan, what do you think about this self-appointment by
2: Young? Well, you know, I think that it's, um, as, as folks have said, that there 's been some concern about it I know that uh, councilwoman uh, nice has said that you know she had some you know serious concerns about you know this self appointment um, I think most folks are looking at it as a wait-and- see approach uh, you know what what is councilman Young's position going to be on the Commission you know how is she going to is she going to go in there uh, as you know somebody who's you know, plan is to be you know obstinate and, you know, throw up roadblocks to progress or to the commission's ability to operate? Um, or is she going to go in and, and just offer, you know, potentially a different perspective, but be a contributing and productive member of the commission? You know, that's really what we've got to wait and see. And, you know, ultimately the, uh, you know, the decision on, on how to hold the councilwoman accountable there is going to be up to that ward. Uh, and if that ward decides, you know, my, my council person, you know, shouldn't have been on there, or they put themselves on there in a way to try to obstruct the uh, the operation and function of this commission. I also think it's just going to be for the commission as a whole a, a wait and see approach. You know how how is this commission going to function? What's their role going to be? You know how um, effective are they going to be about bringing issues of discrimination? Uh, you know to the forefront to the city council, the, the city of Oklahoma City. Um, and you know they say that they want to operate as, as mediators to try to resolve issues. I mean I think that that's a it's an incredibly important function, and I, I wish them the greatest of success in that. But it's probably going to take some time before they're able to actually show some uh, show some progress. Neva,
1: well, I think that's right. I mean, I think first of all, uh, the point is that it is certainly proper for her to uh, assume this position if she if she chooses to, and uh, that there's nothing. Uh, the mayor, as he said, there's no rule against this. Uh, while some, uh, at least one other council member, kind of questioned the appointment. I think you're right, Ryan. It it, it remains to be seen how this uh, how this moves forward, but in her at least initial comments basically she is saying uh that she wants to take this uh, and be able to be a constructive part of the conversation that her concern that uh, that there don't need to be there doesn't need to be uh unnecessary delays in making decisions uh that uh, that they need to work within this framework that's been structured i think the new uh commission chair uh valerie couch uh, certainly uh indicated that uh, she was looking forward to working with uh councilwoman Young, So I think that it sets up for not something that is initially adversarial, but something that is kind of a uh, certainly a new day for the city of Oklahoma City. I mean, this uh, Human Rights Commission was disbanded back in 1996. They took uh, they took a year or two, I believe it was uh, with a task force to really uh, seriously uh, design and think about what it would look like if it came back into existence. So we'll watch this with interest. I think you're right, Ryan. At the end of all of this, it really uh, is about how the citizens view this and how they watch what goes on with these members that have been appointed and the work that they do and whether that impacts uh, those uh, members on the council as they run for re-election if they choose to.
0: The governor is shifting his employment chief over to tourism. Stitt has appointed Oklahoma Employment Security Commission Director Shelley Zumwalt to the Department of Tourism and Recreation. Zumwalt replaces former Stitt appointee Jerry Winchester, who resigned in April after multiple investigations began to probe the department's contracts with Swadley's Barbecue. Neva, what can Zumwalt do in this position?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I guess uh, she's been described as the chief, uh, one of the chief troubleshooters for the governor, and I mean, she's going into an agency that clearly has been in turmoil. Uh, the accusi- accusations continue, uh, the uh, conversations about potential criminal actions still uh, out there uh, in in uh, the public domain being discussed. And I think uh, in this instance, you have someone who is a, a kind of a career state employee, someone who's worked through the ranks, OMES, uh, certainly spent her time uh, in a very challenging period uh, where she just came from at the Employment Security Commission with all that they went through during COVID, COVID, the pandemic, uh, uh, 15% unemployment and all of the things that went along with that in terms of, uh, just trying to manage it. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this, uh, how this moves forward, whether that can, uh, they can kind of level the, kind of level the, uh, uh, concern there a little bit and be able to position it as they move into next year, into the next legislative session, when, again, lawmakers will be uh, very interested and have a lot of questions, I'm sure, as some of these investigations continue to move forward.
2: Right. I think if there's an open records request for Shelley's email, you know, if the governor's emailing uh, her and saying, hey, I want you, to, I'm going to appoint you to do this. I, I've got to think that her response is, gee, thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's a uh, you know, this we're talking about a a real public servant, somebody who's done an, over a decade of service to the state of Oklahoma. Uh, this is an atypical appointment for this governor. The governor likes to you know tap these folks from outside of government, from the private sector, uh, who have really no experience in in managing government, and then they come in, and oftentimes they find themselves having a really difficult time uh, having the same kind of. Uh, you know productivity that they saw in the private sector because it's it's a different type of thing. I mean, we're not out here to make money; we're out here to serve the people of Oklahoma and run a functioning government. Those are two very different things. I'm not saying somebody from the private sector can't do a good job with that, but just because you've you know managed a hedge fund really well for the last ten years doesn't necessarily mean that you can come in and run a state agency, uh, as we've seen. And, and you know, with with Shelley at OES, OESC, um, you know that was a remarkable turnaround uh, and in a very difficult time. And so. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is one of your clutch players that, you know, whenever, you know, you're in trouble, you can look to your bench and say, all right, you're going in. And I think the governor's lucky to have somebody that has state experience, uh, and a record of turning around a state agency during a, a critical time. Uh, I, I hope that she, you know, got some sort of, uh, Letter that said that, you know, in the event that there are, you know, criminal charges or anything like that, that result out of the investigation into the barbecue debacle um, that, you know, she's she doesn't have any of that stink on her. So I don't think that she will. But that's that's always a you know, if you're thinking about walking into an agency and cleaning it up, it was different. The fraud with the Employment Securities Commission was coming from the outside you know, here we have allegations of fraud coming from the inside. And so the new director is going to, you know, be saddled with that just on day one.
1: Well, and, you know, she's someone interesting that she is kind of a carryover. She worked in the Fallon administration, and mm-hmm. very few of those folks, I mean, if you look back, have um, have uh, kind of maintained and, and moved on through uh, in the state administration. So she's someone that kind of brings, as you say, a wide, kind of a wide array of uh, background, health care authority, um the uh, uh, as well as OMEs and and the Employment Security Commission. So it will be interesting to see uh, what she's able to do, or whether it's just uh, be a caretaker and kind of keep uh, keep things calm and not have much happen except uh, uh, the day to day in the tourism business until. Uh, we see uh, we see the next uh, kind of changing of the guard, and things uh, move forward after January.
2: And the day-to-day work continues. I mean, we're even though there's all of this, the, the investigations, you know, multiple investigations into the Swadley's barbecue debacle and you know potential corruption and kickbacks and fraud, whatever that may be. Uh, ultimately, in terms of the results of those investigations, day-to-day operations still have to continue. And, you, you, you know, the, the employees at the tourism department, you know, Godspeed to them because they, they still have to keep the lights on, uh, you know, literally in many of these uh, places around the state of Oklahoma. So, um, you know, having somebody that can come in, whether it's caretaker, or long-term appointment, day-to-day operations, like you say, Neva, are, don't stop and they've got to keep going.
0: Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.